Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drewer, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Turkaya Hulk Bankase AS v. United States, which was argued before the court on January 17th. It's my honor to introduce our guest today, Mike Hurst, a partner at Phelps Dunbar LLP. And with that introduction, I will hand things over to Mike to talk about the case. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It, it really is a fascinating case, what we're going to discuss today, uh, one involving statutory interpretation, uh, issues of separation of powers, uh, the powers and the uh, interactions of the three branches of government, foreign affairs, criminal law. This case has it all. So let's jump in, if you will. First, the question presented to the court is whether U.S. district courts may exercise subject matter jurisdiction over criminal prosecutions against foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities under 18 United States Code Section 3231 and in light of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which is codified at 28 U.S.C. 1330 uh, and for our purposes today, 1604 and 1605. So let me give you the background on the facts of this case. Um, and I'm going to butcher this name. I, I apologize, but Turkia Hawk Bankasi, or as it's translated, People's Bank of Turkey, Turkey was set up by Turkish law in 1933 as a state bank. It's majority owned by the Turkish government. I believe almost 90% of the bank is owned by the Turkish government. Um, it has no branches, employees, officers in the United States, but Turkish law regulates control of the bank. The bank is an affiliate of the Turkish Ministry of Treasury, and the finance minister for Turkey is actually the one that oversees the People's Bank of Turkey. So this case arises from the U.S. sanctions regime uh, targeting Iran between 2012 and 2016. And that regime allowed U.S. allies like Turkey that had long relied upon Iranian oil and gas to continue purchasing those commodities if they complied with certain conditions. Among those, the allies were required to deposit Iran's oil and gas proceeds into a bank under their jurisdiction and limit Iran's use of the deposit proceeds to certain purposes, such as humanitarian relief or bilateral trade. And throughout this period, the Turkish government had designated its bank, the People's Bank of Turkey, uh, Hawk Bank, to serve as the sole repository of Iranian oil and gas proceeds. So fast forward, the government here, federal government, our federal government, alleges that in 2012, a, a Turkish-Iranian businessman named Risa Sarab had hatched a scheme to divert these funds at Hawk Bank to uses not permitted by U.S. sanctions. Specifically, Zarab had approached the Turkey's ministry 
excuse me, Minister of Economy, which was also Hawkbank's governor, um, who in turn directed that the scheme should be conducted through Hawkbank. And the United States government claims that senior Turkish government officials at various times directed the bank to continue and accelerate the scheme. And at Zarab's direction, Hogbank employees helped him transfer funds within the bank from Iranian accounts to accounts belonging to Zarab or his front companies, which he then transferred out of the bank to exchange houses and front companies in Turkey, which he then took those funds and purchased gold and transported that gold to Dubai. Once in Dubai, that gold was converted into cash or currency and remitted to Iran or used to conduct international financial transfers on behalf of Iranian persons or entities. Um, at the bottom, the, the scheme's purpose, according to the U.S. government, was to create a pool of Iranian oil funds in Turkey and the UAE that could be used for Iran's benefit. And it was alleged that Zarab ultimately passed about 5% of these funds through United States accounts on route to other countries. Now, uh, former Hulk Bank employees and executives were accused of conspiring to conceal these schemes from the US Treasury Department. In fact, making misrepresentations to Treasury officials. Uh, in 2017, Zara pled guilty and uh, agreed to cooperate with the federal government in this prosecution. And it, in turn, the federal government uh, indicted three former Hawk Bank uh, executives, one who stood trial and was actually convicted, and the other two have not been caught. So fast forward to almost today. In October of 2019, federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York uh, obtained a six-count indictment against Hawk Bank, charging various uh, things such as conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to violate these this Iran uh, this U.S. sanctions against Iran, uh, money laundering, bank fraud, and, and many others. So, in response, the bank filed a motion to dismiss in district court, uh, but the district court denied that motion, saying that sovereign immunity only applies in civil cases, and thus foreign sovereigns stand like private persons in criminal cases with no immunity under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or even under common law. Uh, and in the alternative, the district court held that the FSIA, the Foreign Services Immunities Act, this commercial activities exception to the immunity would overcome any immunity that the, the uh, bank may have in this case. Now, the bank appealed that uh, immediately, the motion dismissed to the Second Circuit, which affirmed the district court's holding. On the merits, the court first held that subject matter jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. 3231, which, as many of you know, is the general grant of jurisdiction that came down from the Judiciary Act of 1789, um, because the, the phrase, the words, the actual language in Section 3231 says, that it grants jurisdiction, quote, for all offenses against the laws of the United States. Pretty broad, against all offenses against the laws of the United States. But the Second Circuit also acknowledged that uh, some of its previous holdings, uh, specifically interpreting the text and structure of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, demonstrated that Congress actually intended that FSIA 
um, to be the sole basis of attaining jurisdiction over foreign states in courts. Um, but in that context, um, there is an exception or a limit to that immunity. FSIA grants immunity to foreign uh, entities, but there are exceptions to that immunity. And one exception is if the foreign entity is involved in commercial activities. And uh, there's under, I think it's 28 USC 1605, there are three prongs that have to be met in order to um, do that. The first two prongs, which require US acts, uh, the Second Circuit in this case treated the basis of the indictment of the communications between the bank and United States Department of Treasury officials, the misrepresentation to Treasury officials as qualifying for that commercial activity in the United States, satisfying the first two prongs under Section 1605. Um, the court also held that the bank's uh, actions overseas, in Turkey and, and overseas, actually had a direct effect in the United States because they led to those funds clearing through the U.S. financial system, which satisfied the third prong under 1605, which was an exception to the immunity granted under 1604. Um, and then finally, the Second Circuit said, even if you don't buy any of the stuff they said previously, um, the court believes that the state, the foreign entity here, Hawk Bank, uh, lacks criminal immunity under the common law. Uh, it really didn't get into that in much detail, but it did make note of that at the very end of this decision. Um, obviously, the bank went to the Supreme Court. Court granted certiorari last October. And here's what the bank argued, and I think pretty persuasively, to the Supreme Court. First, out of the gate, in its reply brief, the first sentence of the bank says, quote, no federal court has ever presided over the criminal trial of a foreign sovereign, close quote. Let me say that again. No federal court has ever presided over the criminal trial of a foreign sovereign. That's pretty. That's a pretty powerful argument. Um, the bank went on to argue, first off, under Section 3231, that that general grant of federal criminal jurisdiction actually does not confer jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities, uh, specifically because the Supreme Court in a prior case, uh, a very, very prior case in 1812, known as Schooner Exchange, where uh, Chief Justice Marshall in that case said, in order to confer jurisdiction, and that case actually involved, as I mentioned earlier, the Judiciary Act of 1789, which had similar which is where 3231 came from, and it had similar jurisdiction uh, provisions. And in this case, Schooner Exchange, specifically relating to admiralty, uh, Chief Justice Marshall in that case said, um, the descriptive of the ordinary jurisdiction of the judicial tribunals did not confer jurisdiction, in that case, over a French uh, warship. So in that case, a foreign instrumentality. And Chief Justice Marshall said that in those instances where you want to confer or Congress wants to confer jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns because of international law, it's the birth of a new country, all, all those factors, Chief Justice Marshall said Congress needed to speak, quote, in a manner not to be misunderstood. So according to Hulk Bank, 
the general grant of criminal jurisdiction under 3231 should not apply here because Congress has not specifically spoken in a manner in which it would not be understood in wanting to apply criminal jurisdiction to a foreign sovereign, or in this case, its instrumentality. So that's that's the bank's first strong argument. Um, now, the bank also said if there's any doubt remaining, then Congress removed that doubt under the Foreign, Sur foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which provides broad immunity to foreign states. And in this case, majority owned instrumentalities like the bank, quote, from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States, close quote, except as provided in pre-existing international agreements or in specific subsections therein. And that's under 28 USC section 1604. And specifically the, the exceptions, so you have a broad grant of immunity to foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities under 1604. But 1604 says there are exceptions to this immunity. <clears throat> and specifically, one of those exceptions is international agreements. But another exception is if that entity is providing commercial activities. And in this case, um, the Hulk Bank argued that that exception did not apply here. First, the case, according to the bank, is not based upon conduct in the United States, despite what the government alleged, um, because the government's allegations against the bank are all activities that occurred in Turkey. Remember, there are three things, there are three qualifications under that uh, commercial activities exception to immunity. The first two really involve acts in the United States, and the bank says there were no acts. All the acts that the bank did occurred in Turkey. So it knocks you out of the first two exceptions to immunity. Um, so the third exception is, did it have a direct effect in the United States? And the bank says no. Um, the government, the federal government here, claimed that the direct effects were the fact that the money passed through the U.S. banking or financial system. Uh, but Hulk Bank says that's too remote to the alleged conduct. Um, so that's the argument of the bank. The, the government obviously has a different perspective here. <laughs> and the federal government here says that it's in the national interest that the executive branch of our three-branch federal government um, has the discretion to prosecute sovereign foreign sovereigns. Um, specifically in this instance, a foreign sovereign or instrumentality, the, the bank of a foreign sovereign that assisted Iran in evading U.S. sanctions. Um, according to the United States, this lies at the heart of the executive branch's Article II authority under federal criminal law and under foreign policy. So two very prominent uh, Article II authorities for the executive branch. Um, First, the federal government, the United States relies upon, as I mentioned in the bank's argument, the general jurisdictional statute conferring criminal jurisdiction under 18 USC 3231. Um, the, I'm not gonna repeat the language, the language is pretty broad, it's pretty all, pretty all encompassing. Again, it gets back to statutory interpretation and we'll talk a little bit about that from the oral arguments.
But it's a, it's a pretty compelling argument that the United States is making here when the Congress has spoken and they have used terminology such as um, all, all criminal prosecution, all, all jurisdiction, all offenses against the United States. I mean, those are pretty broad statements that it's hard to rebut by the bank that the U.S. government is arguing here. Um, the second argument that the government, U.S. government makes here is um, that common law immunity should apply. And while the U.S. United States puts forth a number of examples of where um, where the U.S. government has proceeded against foreign entities, um, I think the bank has a, a leg up here because most of the cases cited by the United States really related to either the, the waiving of immunity in those instances or really related to just the issuance of criminal subpoenas. And so it's it, it was not, as the bank stated at the very opening of its reply brief, there's never been an instance where the United States has criminally prosecuted in trial another foreign sovereign. So um, it's going to be hard for the United States, I think, to overcome that argument because it's the facts, the facts. Now, the, the United States also says that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act did not immunize the petitioner here because based upon the FSIA's text, its structure, and the history, it does not apply to criminal cases. As the United States quotes, I mean, 28 U.S.C. Section 1330 specifically says that it grants jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns only in non-jury civil cases. Again, that's pretty plain, pretty straightforward. That's clearly the language that FSIA only applies to civil cases. Now, what the bank argues in response is, while the Congress has authorized non-jury civil cases against foreign sovereigns, the Section 1604 immunity provision does not have qualifying language relating to civil uh, trials only. And so that's what the, the bank really hangs its hat on, is that immunity granted under 1604 the bank tries to argue encompasses both criminal and civil. And as we'll, I'll talk about in a little bit, the, the justices were having a real hard time with the bank's argument that we start with FSIA applying only or, or granting jurisdiction for lawsuits, civil lawsuits against foreign entities, foreign sovereigns. But the bank then comes in and says, but the immunity provision of that jurisdiction should apply to all criminal and civil. Um, and I, I don't really think the, the court was buying that argument. So let's let's jump into that argument. The, the, uh, the arguments yesterday were fascinating. Both sides, I thought, did a real good job. Um, I thought the justices had some really, really pointed questions. Uh, Attorney Lisa Blatt argued for Hawk Bank, and she told the justices straight out of the gate that allowing criminal prosecutions of foreign countries as the United States is arguing here, uh, would be unprecedented, unprecedented. And frankly, it would risk retaliation by other countries against the United States and their instrumentalities. 
And, you know, you, she gave some examples like the Import-Export Bank, um, the Voice of America, a number of entities that the United States government um, controls, owns, and has uh, a lot of actions throughout the world. Um, but I, I want to I pose this. Ms. Blatt stated, and I quote, the executive applauds this result, arguing that it alone makes the common law of criminal immunity. But the executive does not make the law, and an immunity waivable by your prosecutor is no immunity at all. Close quote. I thought that was a pretty good argument on Mrs. Blatt's part. Um, if you say, if the prosecutor says you have immunity or you don't have immunity, does anyone really have immunity? Um, so the FSIA, which generally bars lawsuits against foreign governments and U.S. courts. Um, Ms. Blatt said just it doesn't it doesn't apply just to civil lawsuits, despite what I mentioned earlier, that the Section 1330 specifically says non-jury civil lawsuits. Um, Ms. Blatt argues that it prohibits criminal cases against all foreign countries. Um, a ruling that the FSI only confers immunity in civil lawsuits would mean that Congress created special rules just for civil lawsuits, but in Ms. Platt's words, threw sovereigns to the wolves, close quote, for criminal cases. And she said, frankly, quote, that would be cataclysmic. It would mean, quote, 50 states all counties in any city in this country that has prosecution authority would all of a sudden have jurisdiction to prosecute any country qua country. And because Congress has expressly waived immunity and canceled it out on the statute, the executive branch can't do anything about it. Close quote. That's pretty compelling. And the justices picked up on that compelling argument multiple times throughout. But right out of the gate, as soon as Ms. Blatt finished her argument, Justice Thomas began questioning by saying, what was the difference between subject matter jurisdiction and immunity? Specifically asking, if immunity were waived here in this situation, would there still be subject matter jurisdiction? And Ms. Blatt answered that there was no jurisdiction under the general criminal jurisdiction statute of 1331 because as I mentioned, the schooner exchange case earlier, uh, but that section 1604, the immunity provision under the FSIA would cancel out any remaining jurisdiction. And to be frank, I don't really think any of the justices were buying the subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, they kept inquiring with Ms. Blatt about common law immunity and how do we get past that? They weren't really buying her argument that FSIA only relates to civil lawsuits, but immunity relates to both civil and criminal. They weren't really buying that. Um, really what they were buying and what I think the justices were most concerned about with Ms. Blatt's argument was opening Pandora's box here, allowing state, city, county, local, whatever, however many thousands of prosecutors there are throughout the United States, free range on prosecuting foreign entities, whether that be China or India or Iran or Pakistan or whomever, it opens the floodgates and really 
without any recourse that the United States could stop it. Um, a number of justices focused on, um, well, let me ask, let me talk about this real quick. Justice Alito talked about or, or pressed the United States government's um, assistance or deputy solicitor general to explain that question. How could the federal government thwart or stop a criminal prosecution by an elected state prosecutor? And I really don't think that the deputy solicitor general's response was that good because he, he stated that the United States could file a letter, file a letter in state court suggesting that the proceedings should be dismissed. And frankly, I don't think Justice Alito was buying that argument either, either um, because Justice Alito responded that, well, the court, the local court could just ignore the federal government's letter. It's just a letter and could require that the federal government take the case all the way to the Supreme Court. But Gorsuch really piggybacked on Justice Alito's arguments, or questioned rather, and, and says, and, and tried to pinpoint the Deputy Solicitor General down and say, asking him specifically what provision of the Constitution allowed the Supreme Court of the United States, through the Supremacy Clause, to tell states that they were violating customary international law if they were to bring such a lawsuit. And frankly, I, I don't think the Deputy Solicitor General really had a good argument, a really good answer. And, and frankly, I don't think he really answered Justice Gorsuch's um, question there. Now, another thing I think Justice Gorsuch brought up, which is a very valid point, which is, you know, the United States hung its hat on Section 3231 and the plain language, which says all offenses against the United States. That should give jurisdiction over all criminal cases, all offenses against the United States. But Justice Gorsuch turned that argument a little bit on the United States and pressed the government about the plain language of 1604. And 1604 says, in part, a foreign state shall be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States and of the states. Clear and simple, foreign states shall be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts. So according to Gorsuch, he said, on this plain language, quote, we normally start with the statute itself. And if the statute is clear, we stop there. And here the statute's language doesn't parse out criminal versus civil, it says, Courts shall have no jurisdiction to entertain something like that. Pretty broad language that would normally encompass both civil and criminal in a normal case, close quote. Again, the government really didn't have a good argument in response to this other than, and it may be a good argument, other than that one, a court has to look at the language of 1604 in the entire context of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the, foreign, the entire context of FSIA. That means the way that Section 1330 limited jurisdiction to non-jury civil cases, and you can't read 1604 in a vacuum. Again, might be a good argument, but I thought Judge, Justice Gorsuch pressed him um, on the plain language of the argument. Now, 
Justice Kavanaugh, as you would expect, kept coming back to, you know, whether the court should just let the executive branch decide on prosecuting foreign sovereign instrumentalities. Um, and frankly, Kavanaugh said if the Congress didn't like it, they, they could just come back and put restrictions on the government. But that was, that was in the bank's argument that Kavanaugh stated that. Kavanaugh also stated in the United States argument um, whether the court should look at all these questions and uh, try to fit it into a statutory scheme that already exists in Congress and um, basically decide whether the United States has the authority. And if the United States does not have the authority, the government, the executive branch, should go to Congress to get more authority. And so Kavanaugh was kind of playing both sides of, well, first off, should we let the executive branch do its thing, its article to authority over prosecutions, criminal prosecutions over foreign affairs? Or has Congress even granted the court's jurisdiction to hear such cases? And if it has not, and the executive branch wants to prosecute such cases, shouldn't the executive branch have to go to Congress and get Congress to grant subject matter jurisdiction to the courts in order for the executive branch to prosecute foreign sovereigns criminally in our courts? Um, Justice Sotomayor raised, I think, really a tangential issue. I don't really think it went to the merits, but. Her question was, you know, what's the possibility of we have a rogue prosecutor, a federal prosecutor that could bring, you know, indictments against foreign governments? Um, again, the deputy solicitor general tried to reassure that there are processes in place, that that wouldn't happen. The Department of Justice, uh, the attorney general, and ultimately the president could order a United States attorney's office to dismiss such cases. Um, Justice Barrett asked about the need to prosecute foreign countries when criminal charges could be brought against individuals. Um, and the Deputy Solicitor General, I think, rightly stated that, you know, they, 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 the executive branch could and did bring criminal prosecutions against individuals, but many times such individuals were out of the reach of the federal government. Um, and it's specifically in this case, two had been indicted and, and not been extradited or, or brought to justice. And in that case, there are instances where the executive branch, it makes sense to go after the, the publicly owned business in order for the United States government to have a deterrent effect to prevent other foreign sovereign instrumentalities from doing the same thing. Um, the thing, and I, I failed to mention this at the very beginning, because at the very beginning of the oral arguments, Justice Kavanaugh raised this, and, and you would expect this, of a, a justice whose prior career involved, you know, in the White House Counsel's Office. But Kavanaugh really hit the bank hard saying it would be pretty, quote, pretty bizarre for this court to tell the president of the United States that it was placing limits on the executive branch's ability to exercise its national security powers. Um, Kavanaugh described that as, quote, big steps, and quote, that would be huge. Um, and again, Kavanaugh said, if, if Congress disagrees what, with what the United States government is doing here in this case, 
Congress can come back and pass new laws and restrict federal government's prosecution of foreign countries. Um, one thing that kept recurring over and over and over again in the oral arguments was the prospect of possibly sending the case back to the Second Circuit, remanding it back to the Second Circuit uh, to determine whether there might be principles under international law um, that granted immunity to the bank. And whether if, if the FSIA did not shield the bank from criminal prosecution, should the Second Circuit look at common law or international law? Uh, and specifically, there were a few times where some justices asked, um, should they send it back to the Second Circuit to determine whether the bank was, in fact, a true instrumentality of uh, the government of Turkey? Um, I think both both sides, the, the bank and the United States, really didn't see that as necessary. Uh, the bank specifically said that the gov federal government has really conceded that point, and I, I think they are correct. But um, at the end of the day, you know, there, this, again, this case is fascinating with different uh, issues of statutory interpretation, um, the history, the context that, that this, this, this Supreme Court is really looking at uh, and relying upon. Um, and I thought I would have a better sense of where the court might be coming down after hearing the oral arguments. But um, I've got to tell you, I, I'm up in the air. I, I really don't know. Um, I, I thought the bank did a really good job of focusing on the fact that our country has been around over 200 years. And really up until 1989, did the United States government really start pursuing or, or trying to prosecute or, or go after with criminal subpoenas uh, various foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities. So for almost 200 years, it was assumed that foreign governments were immune from criminal prosecution in the United States courts. And again, I think that's a very compelling argument, which you know the bank would say, that's why Congress did not include any reference to criminal prosecutions when it passed the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in 1976 because everyone thought, well, foreign governments are immune from criminal prosecution in U.S. courts. Um, and to, to Justice Barrett's question about, have there been any state prosecutions of foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities? And the, the Ms. Blatt for the bank said, she, other than a few here or there, they, they, they really haven't, because again, the, the assumption was that foreign sovereigns we're not criminally liable in U.S. courts for almost the entirety of the history of our country. So again, fascinating case, a lot, maybe a lot more questions than when we went in with the oral argument, but uh, really good questions by the justices and, and really good job by both sides. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, 
on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot org slash multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 